Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist theory podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. I'm Jamie Peck. And I'm Aaron Thorpe. And when our powers combine, we are Captain Planet. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> keep keep working on that one. Um, no, but seriously, you should still do the reading, though. Yeah, please. And plus, the reading we're doing today is uh, only 20 pages. It's like about 20 pages. It's not long. Yeah. You can do it. Come on. But maybe this will help. Because, okay, this is the first official episode, I guess. I guess we did one episode zero, but it was sort of like... Half the Antifada, yeah. half this new show. Yeah, it was under the Antifada umbrella, the Antifada network. So to Sean speak. was on it. Yeah. You know, we, 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 I guess we needed some training wheels, but this is the first one that's just fully independent. So yeah, yeah. Here we, how does it feel? It feels good, man. It feels good to, uh, to be learning, uh, you know, learning this material and then kind of passing on what we're talking about to uh, other people, kind of coming freshly into these ideas and try to figure it out as we go along so that's exciting and a little intimidating yeah. but exciting i feel the same way i gotta say um i should tell all you folks out there in radio land um aaron and i conceived of this as sort of an accessible not too sectarian resource i won't say totally non-sectarian because certainly we have our takes here and there and we'll have on guests from various uh sectarian sex 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 i'm not gonna say that word um but yeah we wanted an accessible non-sectarian resource on uh you know the essential texts and we also wanted to learn a bunch of stuff ourselves so hopefully we will do both of those things and if you want to support what we're doing you can subscribe at fans.fm slash everybody loves communism and give us money. Yeah. How about that? Hell yeah. Give us money and give us, uh, you know, any comments uh, about what you think we should cover next or anything you think we could do better because this is a, a learning experience for all of us. So, uh, so yeah, let us know what you think. I can't wait. I, you know, the comments on the first one were very nice. Yeah. We, sh- we should figure out if there's a way to get comments on fans because, okay, we're doing this on fans and not Patreon yeah. because Fans FM takes less of your money. Oh, hell which yeah. is a good thing. So we we want to stay in, fully in control of our uh, our platform, our money. Uh, the guy who built fans is a fan of ours already, so that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, we should figure out a way to get comments because I like I, people have some good constructive comments usually for this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, like you know, as people do, I'm sure even if they're listening, they probably uh, read the material. You know, so sometimes like because like a lot of the stuff I'm going to be reading for the first time, you know, if anyone has comments about, well, maybe you guys like, you know, should have talked about this or, you know, next time you talk about a text, consider this. So uh, any of those comments would be helpful as well. Yeah, for sure. We want this to be collaborative Um, and we're going to be doing some live streams down the line, if I can say that probably where people can like talk to us, ask us questions and we can run it a little bit like a reading group. Yeah. Once I get a ring light and I'm not like in my mom's uh, 19th century looking uh, Baroque style living room. Yeah. I like it. I think it's a good look. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't look like a class trader. No, I mean, only if I do. <laughs> like, I'd be living in a glass house. 
where yeah. that's concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Oh, yeah. um, you know, every movement needs its angles is right. Yeah, this is true. This is true. You know, uh, I think it's uh, I mean, again, it's all about the service that uh, we want to help provide to other people, you know, because reading a lot of the stuff that we have. I mean, the two things we were one thing we covered the first episode of the manifesto and what we're going to talk about today. Um, this is stuff that, you know, when I first became radicalized, I wasn't introduced to off the bat. You know, I, mean, I think most people get into leftism through some, uh, you know, progressive strain of electoral politics, you know, whether it's AOC, Bernie Sanders, or maybe even something like Occupy. So, uh, you know, I mean, we do what we can here and uh, take the knowledge that we have to, uh, to teach y'all some shit, you know, learn y'all something. Exactly. So on that note, let's introduce the text. So today we are doing Marx's 1875 broadside critique of the goth program in which he called Ferdinand LaSalle a poser and made fun of him for dressing up like a vampire. Now, as we all know, Marx was a punk. He did not like goths. He thought they were lame and he was not afraid to say it. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Jamie, I think, uh, I think it's actually a critique of the Gotha program. You just added a, a vowel and a syllable, but, but it's all right. Oh, shit. Yeah, your assessment's well, probably right, though. It's all right. <laughs> well, well, what was he talking about then when he talked about the suckdems? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he did talk about the suckdems. This is true. Uh, although in a different context, which we'll, we'll cover I, in a bit. <laughs> I want to suck them your blood. Indeed, indeed, indeed. That's, that's, that's what LaSalle would say, you know? Like, his name's fucking Ferdinand LaSalle. Like, yeah, is yeah. that or is that not the name of someone who thinks he's a vampire? Yeah. I, I thought it was, you know, I was going to ask you, because uh, at first I thought it was, La, I thought it was that double L was like uh, silent or something. So I don't know if it was LaSalle, LaSalle, LaSalle. The Vampire LaSalle. The, the, the Vampire LaSalle. That's right. Sorry. Well, as it turns out, okay, just kidding. I actually do know what we're talking about today. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, but it's not that far off, really, because he is kind of calling out LaSalle for being a poser or, you know, maybe even a fake friend to the yes. workers' movement. Yes. An opportunist, if you will. Mm-hmm. Lenin warned us about fake friends. And he told us, man. As did Marx. Before Drake did, we were warned. <laughs> we were warned. That's right. So, yeah, I have a little uh, historical background that I'm going to give for this. And then I'm going to pass it off to Aaron to summarize the first part of the text. How about that? Okay. All right. Let's go. All right. So let's see what do we got here. All right, I wrote I wrote a little thing up. I'm going to read it and maybe add stuff here and there. We'll see how we do. All right. So this essay, Critique of the Gotha Program, was adapted from Marx's letter to W. Brack, who was a member of the Social Democratic Workers Party of Germany, in advance of this big old conference they were about to have in Gotha, at which point... The Social Democratic Workers' Party of Germany, or SDAP, planned to merge with the General German Workers' Association, or ADAV, to form one unified party. And in fact, that's what ended up happening. So in this letter, Marx's, Marx gives his comments on a unity platform that he found lacking in many places. Now, Ferdinand LaSalle was dead by this point. Um, he died 
Fun fact, he died in a duel over a girl, Damn. actually, which okay. is objectively hilarious. <laughs> okay. I guess a lot of guys died that way back then. Aren't you glad they don't do that anymore? Yeah, miss me with that, man. Never. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, kill, don't kill yourself over anybody. No. No. Um, but anyway, uh, LaSalle, before he died in a duel over a girl like an idiot, um, was one of the primary founders and leaders of this party. And his fingerprints were still all the fuck over it. Um, so a little more history. Like I said, they merged. They created the Socialist Workers Party of Germany later on, which became the SPD, which was the German Social Democratic Party that famously killed Rosa mm. in 1919. That's Rosa Luxemburg for those following along at home. And it still exists to this day. Yeah. So we thought it would make sense to do this text after the Communist Manifesto because Marx had had almost 30 years to think about things between the two texts. And he addresses the dictatorship of the proletariat in slightly more detail, as well as the transition from capitalism to communism and the differences between lower stage communism, a.k.a. socialism, and higher stage communism, a.k.a. communism. <laughs> Honestly, I wish he said more about all this stuff, but, you know, it's just like Marx to leave you wanting more. Yeah. And, and for us, he died. And for us to figure out too, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then he died like not that long after. He was kind of at the end of his life here. So um, it's always good to get his, his last thoughts yeah. on His on last something. spicy takes. Yeah. yeah. And he is spicy. He really doesn't hold back because he really cares. You know, he really cared a lot about what was going to happen to the communist movement. And he, he saw a lot in this text that he wanted to warn against. Um, I think it's also an interesting look into how communists like Marx approached coalition work with parties that might be to the right of them, which I think a lot of leftists doing organizing work today can relate to if they've ever had to work with a left liberal group or an NGO. So some basic points that he hits in this text are LaSalle's misunderstanding of value, specifically the role of land and nature and property relations. Um, fun side note, he was, LaSalle was friends with Otto von Bismarck. They corresponded quite a bit. So Sus the place, fuck, by the way. The, yeah, the places <laughs> where he's like, wow, you're just being nice to the fucking landowning aristocrats. Like, he, I think he kind of had a point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, what else? We talk about the need for communism to arise out of capitalist society for a transitional period called the dictatorship of the proletariat, um, the need for proletarian internationalism, and the need to understand capitalism's problems uh, of distribution as being inseparable from the underlying mode of production. So in short... Marx was here defending a revolutionary communist program against what he viewed as opportunism, revisionism, and reformism. You heard? Exactly. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about it at the uh, end when we talk about modern day relevance. But like you said, Jamie, we can see this. Uh, if you're an organizer leftist who has to deal with uh, left liberal groups or NGOs, or you were there during, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign of 2016 and 2020. You know, also people like Elizabeth Warren and AOC, uh, you know, people like AOC and Sanders who call themselves self-described socialists, democratic socialists. Um, we can see how this text is relevant in terms of being careful of coalition building, calculating the cost benefit analysis of coalition building with uh, differently aligned groups 
and um, how that can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Word. So without further ado, I guess I'm going to pass it off to you now, Aaron, for a summary of parts one and two. All right. So uh, for parts one and two for the summaries, I do also have stuff written down, but um, I'm going to try to paraphrase, but I will be pulling out some direct quotes from Marx and uh, some things we'll say for the discussion, um, but I'll give a general overview of part one and two. Um, so in part one, Marx uh, uses semantics to demystify the platform's empty phrases and reveal what they really mean. And this seems like nitpicking. Um, but as he goes through point by point of the program, you can actually see that it's very important um, how he picks apart um, platitudes of the Lasallians and how this is actually in servitude of the bourgeois and not actually centers uh, any sort of revolutionary process or uh, the proletariat, but again, is just sort of um, just, I guess, an expression of uh, class rule um, through the bourgeois. So. Uh, the first point is uh, labor is the source of wealth in all culture, and since useful labor is possible only in society and through society, the proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. So I think that, you know, if you're listening to this and you're a leftist, you're a Marxist, um, well, you're a leftist, you might say, socialist, you might say, okay, this sounds like, sounds right, this sounds fine. But actually, Marx... Uh, First, firstly takes issue with this negation of historical materialism. Um, and again, historical materialism is basically how human beings interact with nature in order to produce things. Um, this is the material basis of all society. And this process gives rise to new needs and modes of production and social relations. So Marx actually says that labor is not the source of all wealth. He says, quote, nature is just as much the source of use values, and it is surely of such that material wealth consists as labor, which is itself only the manifestation of a force of nature, which is human labor power. Um, and I think this part is important because claiming otherwise that um, that wealth and culture are not derived from nature is a mystification of the bourgeoisie's ownership of private property and the exploitation of labor. Um, I think that the most insidious thing that capitalism does is it obscures our relation to nature and human development to nature. I mean, this is why the environment, um, nature is seen as some sort of uh, constant externality, right? It's not factored in um, with any consideration into economic processes, which, I mean, obviously now we're going through disastrous effects of climate change um, have been, as well as a mass extinction event. So it's uh, pretty notable that this is the first thing that Marx points out. Um, to continue that, Marx says, but a socialist program, quote, but a socialist program, which is the Gotha program, cannot allow such bourgeois phrases to pass over in silence the conditions that loan give meaning, um, give them meaning. And by conditions, he means the economic mode of production. And insofar as man from the beginning behaves toward nature, the primary source of all instruments and subjects of labor as an owner, treats her as a belonging to him, his labor becomes a source of use values, therefore also of wealth. Um, so again, this is this is pretty notable, and this is how the bourgeoisie is not only able to exploit nature for their own ends, but also the working class. Um, because you have no control over what you don't own, right? Which is not just the uh, implements of the means of production, but also the extractive resources that are used to... Uh, manipulate nature to uh, our ends, right? Or the system's ends, I should say. Um, 
Secondly, Marx, he goes on to, he has critique with more phrases such as uh, useful labor. And um, again, this is another, this is another uh, quote from the program. Uh, useful labor is possible only in society and through society. Um, in other words, no useful labor is possible without society, Marx says. Um, but this is meaningless and it's misleading because society also produces useless and socially harmful labor. I mean, I can just think of the capitalist class and the bourgeois class and being a, a landlord as something that is uh, useless and socially harmful. Um, so if you're going to say that uh, that this system only produces or can only produce useful labor, but that also means conversely that it can also produce useless labor. And secondly, more importantly, I think, is useful according to whom, right? Um, is it useful for the bourgeois class? Uh, quote, Marx says, only labor which produces the intended useful result. Uh, so does this mean that uh, primitive people like cavemen, right, who were uh, hunting and gathering, does this mean that their labor wasn't useful? I don't think anybody would say that, right? So that is a, a problematic, misleading, and empty phrase. Uh, Marx goes on to kind of explain the rest of that phrase or critique the rest of the phrase, which says, the proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. Um, and this one, he takes a minute to unpack. Because again, if you're just reading this at face value as in leftist, I mean, you know, you would agree, right, that our, the fruits of our labor, the fruits of the working class, labor of the working class should be enjoyed by all. But again, Marx uses semantics to pick apart this argument. Um, and he says that this this vulgar socialism has always been employed by, quote, the champions of the state of society prevailing at any given time. Um, so this obviously obviously means the ruling class. I mean, you can even say that sects of socialism, which Marx talks about later, have varying definitions of um, of of returning undiminished uh, goods with, in equal, with equal right to all members of society. Um, and a little bit more, actually, Marx, when he talks about how the government, the state utilizes this empty phrasing, he says, quote, first comes the claims of the government and everything that sticks to it, since it is the social organ for the maintenance of the social order. Then comes the claims of the various kinds of private property. For the various kinds of proper, private property are the foundations of society, etc. One sees that such hollow phrases are the foundations of society, etc. One sees that such hollow phrases can be twisted and turned as desired. Um, so another notable important thing that Marx points out. Um, he also says that fair distribution of the proceeds of labor um, is, evidence, is evidence of the program's focus on the distribution instead of the economic mode of production um, from which it arises. Therefore, treating distribution as independent, which is problematic. And that's something that you mentioned earlier, Jamie, and we'll talk about that more. The, the Salian's obsession and many left liberals and self-described democratic socialists today, their obsession with redistributive programs instead of actually tackling the economic order as is. Um, then Marx actually, he points out, he points out another, uh, another problem, a second point, um, of the program, which says, quote, in present day society, the instruments of labor are the monopoly of the capitalist class. The resulting dependence of the working class is the cause of misery and servitude in all forms. And again, I have to keep saying that, you know, if you read these things at face value as a leftist, they seem like they make a lot of sense. But Marx actually adds that, and I think this is very true today, 
given real estate capitalism um, and living in Atlanta, I would know this. Jamie, you living in New York would know this. Uh, Marx adds that the instruments of labor are also the monopoly of landowners. And uh, it's kind of interesting that the LaSalle would include landowners as uh, also having monopoly of labor. Um, Marx says, uh, quote, the correction was introduced because LaSalle, for reasons now generally known, I like that little slight. Like, it's just like kind of like sticks him at the side, right? Um, got him. It got him, right? LaSalle, uh, because LaSalle, for reasons now generally known, attacked only the capitalist class and not the landowners. In hmm. England, the capitalist class is usually not even the owner of the land on which his factory stands, which is still very much true today. Um, so one thing that I kind of found interesting, and it kind of took me time to unravel this in part one, um, and I think this is an important part of it, is Marx later returns to his beef with the term, quote, undiminished proceeds of labor. Um, and he has uh, two arguments against it. I'll say two main arguments against it. One, he says that he notes that during production, deductions are already made from the product of labor in the form of replacing units' means of production, uh, expanding the means of production, things like accident or disability or natural disaster insurance, and et cetera. Um, he says that these deductions are an economic necessity, right? Um, also, I, I should add this beforehand, before we even get into uh, this undiminished, uh, these undiminished proceeds of labor, Marx also says that are these undiminished proceeds and their subsequent rights really guaranteed to all members of society, including those who don't work or can't work? And um, we'll, we'll go on, we'll, I'll go on that, off on that in a bit. Um, Basically, Marx says, yes, so these deductions are an economic necessity. And he says, quote, their magnitude is to be determined according to available means and forces and partially by computation of probabilities. They are in no way calculable by equity. Right. And the second part of that is that regarding consumption. Um, so this means consumption of social services uh, such as education and healthcare, because there are people who are not able to work or cannot work or cannot work as long as others, that there has to be a social safety net, right? So within consumption of this total social product, there are again deductions. And Marx says that these deductions vary in proportion to the mode of production. So what he means by that is that he says that first of all, in terms of the administration of these services, right now under capitalist society, um, it's very bloated. I mean, these, these, the system of administration is bureaucratic. And Marx says that as we transition to socialism and then communism, um, the deductions from this administration of services will shrink. He also says, though, that the portion that is paid for a social safety net, that will increase in proportion to a trans, uh, transitory society to communism. I think that anyone right now living in the United States, you probably listen to this, you don't have health care. So your surplus value, the labor, what you're not owed, that labor is not going back into making sure that you have health care or that your kids have an education or that you have housing. But it actually goes to the profits of your landlord and the banks and financial institutions and whatnot, the capitalist class. So Marx says that under a transitory phrase of uh, socialism to communism, the deductions will increase for the provision of a safety net. And again, this is for people who, you know, obviously can't work. Um, and thirdly, um, for people, also again, for people that can't work, they're uh, poor relief, which, you know, which we barely have any of now. Um, so 
I think these things are important to understand that that in a society that's meant for the collective good, individuals will have to sacrifice some in order to be a member of society for the benefit of all society. Right. So this 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 phrase of undiminished goods, um, undiminished proceeds of labor is meaningless because proceeds are already diminished before distribution, um, during production and during consumption. And furthermore, actually, under communism, we have to remember that under communism, producers, individual producers do not exchange their products, um, at least not uh, through the exchange value under commodity production, um, nor does the embodied labor of these products appear as value because now individual labor is now a component of total labor. This means that it's not alienated from social reality, right? If that makes any sense. Um, yeah, he, sorry yeah, to cut no, in here. Please. I noticed you wrote this down mm. in a note where Marx is like, what do the proceeds of labor, what the fuck does that even mean? Exactly. Is he saying, is it the product of labor, which is something that would still exist under communism, or is it the value generated, which would not exist once we get rid of money and value? Exactly, exactly. And I, I'm going to talk about that a little more later because, um, you know, Marx, Marx kind of, uh, I think the main problem with the, the Lasallians is their, they're kind of, how can I say, it? they are full-throated, full-throatedly believe in reification or they're operating on the idea of reification. And I'll talk about this a little bit later. Um, this is the, uh, I guess, the transmutation of subject, a person, um, into an object and vice versa, right? Where commodities, which are objects, suddenly are imbued with a life of their own, right? And LaSalle uh, kind of, again, through assuming that through distribution and through rights and through parliamentary procedures, right, that we can achieve socialism, we can achieve communism. Marx says, no, 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 you have to deal with the essence of things rather uh, than the appearance, right? Um, mm -hmm. But we'll talk about that in a bit. So um, again, in the in this first part, um, which I'm halfway through now, and I'll, I'll, start, uh, I'll start kind of wrapping up to the second part. Um, this is important, though. Uh, and we'll talk about this. Marx says that communism will emerge from a capitalist society and so will retain certain characteristics from the previous society during the transitory lower phase, which is socialism. So this means that during the transitory phase of lower socialism or the lower stage of communism, rather, Marx says, quote, the individual producer receives back from society after the deductions have been made, the deductions we've talked about, exactly what he gives to it. The same amount of labor which he has given to society in one form, excuse me, he receives back in another. So this is an equal exchange. It's still based on exchange of values, but rather an equal exchange of values. Um, it's based on equal right, which is still bourgeois right. Um, and Marx notes that this is an insidious holdover um, from capitalist society. And this is because if you're going to measure labor and labor, you're going to measure labor as an equal standard for everyone. Um, it's defined by duration, um, intensity of work, and this means that some people are capable of providing more labor or laboring longer than others. Uh, maybe they're stronger. Um, maybe they're more mentally capable. Maybe they do not have um, a family, you know, um, where they have to, you know, be concerned about the stress of like family life, you know. It can be for any number of reasons that are not just about physical or mental attributes. Um, 
And this is these the people that are able to work longer, uh, work harder. I wouldn't say harder, work longer, work more um, are, quote, tacitly recognized for their unequal individual endowment and thus productive capacity um, or natural privilege. So this is sort of an inequality of rights. Right. Um, Basically applying an equal standard to everyone simply because they are workers, which would happen in the lower phase of communism, socialism. Um, this ignores differences between people and reproduces inequality. And I want to be clear about this. Marx notes that this is a necessary evil in the transitional stage to uh, higher communism. Right. Um, and this is because communism is not born in a vacuum. It's not built in a vacuum. It's not created in a vacuum. It's or in its own conditions, but it has to emerge from capitalist society, which means that it will carry the old scars, um, the intellectual, economic, and moral institutions um, of the previously existing order. But Marx says to avoid all these defects, right, instead of being equal, would have to be unequal. He says, but these defects are inevitable in the first phase of communist society as it is when it has just emerged after prolonged birth pangs from capitalist society. And Jamie, I hope we can talk about this because this I had to read this part a couple times. He says, right can never be higher than economic structure of society and its cultural development conditioned thereby. That uh, that kind of blew my mind, man. And I think, you know, reading a lot of this, you kind of got to shed your bourgeois notions and everything that you've been taught about rights and understand that, well, what are rights in bourgeois society, right? It's the right of the owner class, right? It's not the right of the bourgeoisie. Um, so we could talk about that in a bit. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. even rights that seem equal, again, become unequal when applied across an unequal population, especially when you got, when you got capitalism interfering with everything right like we can think of so many examples like i guess everyone technically has freedom of speech but we know that the rich have more freedom of speech because elon musk can just pay a million dollars to call someone a pedophile <laughs> and it's fine well like you know like people i think people should think about it like i mean look at the united states right i mean the united states has like all of these rights enshrined you know within its uh within its uh founding document within its institution but like you know black panthers didn't have freedom of speech you know what i mean like you know the suffragettes didn't have freedom of speech like these these like rights they had to be fought for you know through resistance so I just want to make that clear which again this is this is a thread that runs through um through this whole entire program the lasallians they're they're favoring of um statism rather than the proletarian um so i just want we should also yeah. uh-huh. go ahead, sorry i just oh, want to clarify uh, one thing um, we're talking about how people would get paid in this transitional phase mm-hmm. and Marx is fairly specific here that he's talking about non-transferable labor vouchers so you'd get a piece of paper for however many hours you worked that you could then trade in exchange for necessary goods or whatever. Yeah. Now they would not be transferable to other people. So there would not be a secondary market for these labor vouchers, but basically it creates a situation of, like we said, um, from each according to his abilities to each, according to his contribution, yeah, which yeah. like you said, is not where we want to end up. No. And and actually, to uh, to go off on that, this is where we want to end up. This is an extensive quote from Marx. Quote, in a higher phase of communist society, 
after the enslaving subordination of the individual to the division of labor, and therewith also the antithesis between mental and physical labor has vanished, after labor has become not only a means of life, but life's prom prime want, after the productive forces, forces sorry, have also increased with the all-around development of the individual, and all the springs of cooperative wealth flow more abundantly, only then can the narrow horizon of the bourgeois right be crossed in its entirety and society inscribe on its banners from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, so to, uh, to kind of close out uh, the first part, because there are two things, uh, two more very important things. Um, so part uh, point four in the program um, is another, uh, Marx has another critique of that. Uh, it says, quote, the emancipation of labor must be the work of the working class relative to which all other classes are only one reactionary mass. So uh, Marx mentions that this is actually a, a, bastardization, a bastardization of the introductory words of the rules of the international, which read, quote, the emancipation of the working class must be the act of the workers themselves. So this is just an interesting kind of like turn of phrase. Um, kind of centering the uh, labor uh, instead of the emancipation um, of uh, class distinctions, right? Um, which, which essentially, that's that's the idea, right? Is that you we emancipate class distinctions. This is why we have this trans transitory phase or dictatorship of the proletariat, which we can talk about later. But it's not just the emancipation of labor. Right. It's not just, again, um, sort of being obsessed with the the essence of things. Uh, sorry, the appearance of things, but rather the essence. Right. Um, Marx goes back to the manifesto as well uh, with this second part of that point, uh, which is that all other classes are one reactionary mass. And in the manifesto, uh, which we covered last time, Marx says, of quote, of all the classes that stand face to face with the bourgeoisie today, the proletariat alone is a really revolutionary class. The other classes decay and finally disappear in the face of modern industry. The proletariat is its special and essential product. So this perversion of the manifesto, but also the rules of the international, that first point, it's problematic because, uh, one, the bourgeoisie is a revolutionary class relative to the feudal lords and the lower middle class, which is, quote, becoming revolutionary which is becoming revolutionary, sorry, quote, in, its, in view of its impending transfer to the proletariat. Um, and two, uh, LaSalle is clearly throwing in with the absolutist and feudal opponents against the bourgeoisie, which is, again, another dynamic that uh, was mentioned in the manifesto, that um, oftentimes the, uh, the, the bourgeoisie, obviously, and whole remnants of uh, feudalism and absolutists and monarchs um, the bourgeoisie have a vested interest in toppling um, these remnants of the old order and will often align with, um, just for achieving this goal, they'll align with uh, socialists, right? So, again, I think that this is, it's, it's, not, it's not even just misleading, but I think LaSalle is, it's really is a perversion and bastardation of, um, of Marxism. I mean, to say that all other classes are reactionary or one reactionary mass. I mean, if you could apply it to today, could you imagine saying, you know, to uh, somebody, you know, uh, that voted for sure, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, it doesn't matter that this person's reactionary. I mean, lumping our politics in that way, doesn't seem to be very productive towards uh, 
some sort of mass politics. So, um, okay. All right. So, oh yeah. Um, I think I've got him forgot to mention, maybe mention one part. Um, and this is that in part one, Marx has beef with the program's erroneous focus on distribution as independent of the mode of production itself. Um, this is a great quote from here. I'll quote him at length. Quote, vulgar socialism, and from it, in turn, a section of the Democrats, has taken over from the bourgeois economists the consideration and treatment of distribution as independent of the mode of production, and hence the presentation of socialism as turning principally on distribution, after the real relation has long been made clear why retrogress again. And um, I mean, this is basic, you know, base versus superstructure, right? That all the inst cultural institutions, the religious institutions, um, the legal institutions, arise out of the economic base, right? So in order to change these things, including the state, you would have to change and radically transform the economic base, right? So Yeah, I know. think that's I think that's all in here. Um but I think it's also important um Yeah, I mean, I guess you basically said it in a different way than I No, go <laughs> ahead. I that I had written down. Basically, um like we've all seen this, you know, to this very day democratic socialists who think it's merely a problem of distribution mm -hmm. when in fact production and distribution are part of the same closed system and it doesn't make sense to think only about distribution in a vacuum um like to be only concerned with distribution and not production is to sidestep the need to change the relations of production via some sort of revolutionary rupture basically uh like i don't know you you can see it with liberals you can see it with libertarians right mm. like andrew yang ubi and yeah. shit yeah like oh well we just need to like spread the money around spread the wealth around a little bit more and everything will be fine no like the workers are still in fucking chains and that's not going to change until they break out of it exactly exactly and uh before before okay so there's one more important part uh with uh part one this last part um which i think is again when we talk about uh, modern day relevancy i think this point is important this is the fifth point of the program it says quote the working class strives for its emancipation first of all within the framework of the present day national states conscious that the necessary result of its efforts which are common to the workers of all civilized countries will be the international brotherhood of peoples so that's a lot of that's a lot of uh it's a lot of empty phrases right there um first of all i mean obviously the respective workers of any country they have to organize as a class within their borders um though not in substance but form and this part is very important um not in substance but form and yeah what does that mean the the way that i took this is that um i had written down that uh Appeals to like nationalism and isolationism and jingoism or militarism, uh, xenophobia, all of these things couched in socialism are a recipe for author authoritarian or even fascistic disaster. Um, meaning that in, in, in form, I guess, how would you say, Jamie? Because this part, this is, this is something that I kind of had a problem with too. But I think that it's kind of, it's kind of a, a, war, a warning of how how a strictly nationalistic class struggle can often devolve into straight up nationalism and isolationism. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's saying that 
ba- I think the basic thing he's saying in this section is you got to do proletarian internationalism the right yes, way, exactly. not just pay lip service to it. And, you know, a lot of different people have extrapolated a lot of different things from this. Mm. I don't think he is as specific as maybe I would like him to be here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, some people say that means that you have to support national liberation struggles in other countries, and that is a route to communism. Um, other people think, uh, actually, no, that's a dead end. That's not a route to communism. Real proletarian internationalism means something else entirely. So I don't really know. But basically, he's saying, don't fuck it up. Yeah, don't fuck it up. And furthermore, I mean, he mentions that the bourgeoisie, at least like um, the German Empire at the time, I mean, and today's bourgeoisie, I mean, they recognize themselves as a class engaged, already engaged in internationalism, but through trade and finance, right? So the proletariat, through interla- international proletarian solidarity and not empty slogans and gestures, um, we also have to make these international overtures, right? Um, and he also says that this, this phrase, the International Brotherhood of Peoples, is actually borrowed from the Bourgeois League of Peace and Freedom. Uh, which was a pacifist organization uh, founded in Switzerland in 1867. Uh, and uh, final note, which I thought again was interesting, uh, is the official paper of the Bismarck government. They were they were pretty pleased to announce that the German Workers Party had sworn off internationalism. Right? Mm. They were pretty happy mm. about that. <laughs> Damn it! Yeah, yeah. Um, so part two, which uh, is much shorter, um, and I won't take as long to. Uh, and it's it's also I think the first part it was just. Breaking down the point by point, the semantics um, was a bit uh, was important, but also kind of kind of hard to wrap my head around. So I hope that uh, we were able to help you guys. But the second part, though, is a little bit shorter, but equally as important. And uh, Marx basically talks about his problem with uh, LaSalle's iron law of wages, um, which is uh, supposedly wages always drop to the lowest possible level. Now, this this iron law of wages um, Actually, let me read let me read uh, the quote from the program. Uh, quote, starting from these basic principles, the German Workers Party strives by all legal means for the free state and socialist society that abolition of the wage system together with the iron law of wages and exploitation in every form, the elimination of all social and political inequality. Um, so Marx deals with the state later, which, Jamie, you'll take that part over next. But. First, he focuses on this iron law of wages, and actually he says that it's, it rests on this uh, Malthusian um, fatalistic theory of population, uh, which is as population increases. I'm sure you've heard about, uh, who is it, Malthus, and what's the other guy? Mm-hmm. What's the other guy that people know? I forget. But if you, I don't know. Yeah. Some cock. So Yeah. You, you, you guys, if you've been to any, uh, not even halfway decent American high school, have probably heard of Malthus. But basically, his theory of population says that uh, claims that as population increases exponentially, the growth of food and other resources is linear, triggering a population die-off. So it's it's pretty fatalistic, and uh, yeah, yeah, and it also leads down some very bad roads politically that we really don't want to go down. I mean, if you yeah. think about efforts that have been made in the past to control certain populations, they don't usually end well. No, and I mean, we don't even have to talk about. I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but we don't even have to talk about, uh, you know, the 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 completely omnicidal end of that spectrum, which is like, you know, this great replacement theory, right? How uh, immigrants from Africa 
and uh, Latin America are uh, flooding, you know, um, Western countries, you know, like, well, countries, I should say, like the United States or Britain or Europe. Um, I mean, we could even see this, you know, within liberal ideology, you know. Yeah. Uh, yep. And like, it's just been proven false by history and technology. If you think about how um, the growth of our ability to produce food and feed everyone has not necessarily been linear through the years, but technology has taken great leaps um, in a lot of different ways. Exactly. And also Mark says, like, if this theory is true, right, um, then wage labor can't be abolished because that would mean that it doesn't only govern the economic system, but in fact, every social system, which is pretty fucking depressing. And um, even more depressing is that uh, bourgeois, bourgeois economists have asserted, have used this reasoning to assert that socialism cannot abolish poverty, um, which is natural, they say. Again, this sounds very familiar um, in, in today's terms. Uh, and they say that this, this poverty is, is natural um, and socialism won't abolish it, but only universalize it. So basically sinking the entire world into misery at once. All right. So uh, iron law wages, uh, pretty bullshit and um, pretty unoriginal, um, actually. Uh, yeah. So the the last part of uh, or well, another important part, the other important part, I should say, of uh, part two before I wrap up is that Mark says that since LaSalle's death, the German Workers Party. Wait, wait, wait. Well, there's, did I skip something? There's a little there's a little more. Sorry, I Go added ahead. it in. So your brain might have skipped over because <laughs> you're ahead. like, I didn't write that. Um, well, he also says, importantly, he's such a debate lord. I love it. <laughs> he's like, even if the iron law of wages were real, it would have no bearing on whether or not we need to overthrow capitalism. Mm. Right. And you could see that reflected by left liberals today when they're like, well, you know, we just need to make sure everyone gets paid enough to live on and then capitalism is fine. Fuck off. So Marx has a quote showing how ridiculous this is. He says, <clears throat> quote, it is as if among slaves who have at last got behind the secret of slavery and broken out in rebellion, a slave still enthralled to obsolete notions were to inscribe on the program of the rebellion Slavery must be abolished because the feeding of slaves in the system of slavery cannot exceed a certain low maximum. Exactly. 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 Like, it doesn't matter how much the slaves get fed. They're still fucking slaves. Exactly. And I mean, also, too, you know, it doesn't matter whether wages increase or decrease. Right. I mean, that's not that's not the actual point. Right. Because capital will find other ways by extending the workday or by trying to increase productivity, they'll find another way to uh, monopolize on that theft of surplus value, right? So it's not it's not the question of, well, you know, eventually wages will just get low enough. No, that's, that's not actually the problem. And again, um, Marx actually says that uh, after this under, understanding, quote, and after this understanding of the uh, German Workers' Party, um, of, of the essence of wage labor, after this understanding has gained more and more ground in our party, some return to LaSalle's dogma, although they must have known that LaSalle did not know what wages were. But following, but following in the wake of the bourgeois economists took the appearance for the essence of the matter. Um, and I put something in my notes um, again, and we'll, we'll touch on this. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on this again when we cover more text. But um, again, this is uh, the concept of reification. Um, which is that social relations are seen as natural properties of the people and things or commodities involved in them. Um, you know, I talked about previously object, uh, which is the commodity becoming subject and vice versa. 
which means that commodities become imbued with a life of their own once engaged. And we, human beings, uh, become subordinate. Um, and a quote here, I just want to read a quote. It's fine if it's all right from Capital, um, Volume 1. Uh, Marx says of the exchange between producers, quote, the social relations between their private labors appears appear as what they are, i.e. they do not appear as direct social relations between persons and their work, but rather as material relations between persons and social relations between things. So again, this is something that we see constantly um, throughout uh, throughout this text. And Marx ends it saying that, quote, uh, part two, quote, instead of the indefinite concluding phrase of from the paragraph, which was, again, the elimination of all social and political inequality, it ought to have been said that with the abolition of class distinctions, all social and political inequality arising from them would disappear of itself. So again, we see that uh, as before with the alienating of uh, distribution from the mode of production, like we saw before, Vassal, his sect, and uh, bourgeois economists are mystifying the essence of things in favor of appearance. And like you said, Jamie, instead of what actually needs to be done, which is a revolutionary rupture of the existing order. So boom, boom. That's a uh, that was part one and two. I hope I hope I did that. Uh, that. All right. So you think you're done with critiques of the Gotha program? You're not. Marx has a whole bunch more that I'm going to tell you about right now. Indeed. So part three. And uh, I kind of formatted it like program says this. Marx says this. So let's start with the program. So the program says, and I quote, the German Workers' Party, in order to pave the way to the solution of the social question, demands the establishment of producers' cooperative societies with state aid under the democratic control of the toiling people. The producers' cooperative societies are to be called into being for industry and agriculture on such a scale that the socialist organization of the total labor will arise from them. End quote. Now, I think this will sound familiar to anyone who's read uh, Vivek Chibber on the Parliamentary Road to Socialism or perhaps is familiar with Richard Wolff's co-op world vision of socialism, which is to say... Uh, socialism divorced from revolutionary rupture and divorced from communism, which, of course, is the end goal that this is supposed to be striving towards. So what Marx has to say about it is, quote, Instead of arising from the revolutionary process of transformation of society, the, quote, socialist organization of the total labor, quote, arises from the, quote, state aid that the state gives to the producers' cooperative societies in which the state, not the workers, quote, calls into being. It is worthy of LaSalle's imagination that with state loans, one can build a new society <laughs> just as well as a new railway. <laughs> well, I love it when he is sarcastic. So basically, Marx is saying the idea that you can, the state can just give money to workers to create co-ops and somehow that'll make socialism. This is a ridiculous, top-down, technocratic vision of how we get to socialism and therefore it's dumb. Um, the state is not, as LaSalle thinks it is, some neutral tool that we can petition to make policies that nudge us closer and closer to socialism until one day, oh, look, now we've got communism. Cool. Uh, no, no, no. The bourgeois state is an instrument of class rule 
by the bosses over the workers and as such must be confronted along with the capitalists it serves. And this must happen once again in a revolutionary rupture initiated by the workers themselves. Hell yeah. So by placing, by putting these demands to the state, Marx says that the toiling people show they, quote, neither rule nor are ripe for ruling. Basically, this is no way for the masses to build power. The state is not your friend. (laughs) However, however, he doesn't totally reject the idea of workers cooperatives as being somehow progressive, saying, quote, but as far as the recent as the present cooperative societies are concerned, they are of value only insofar as they are the independent creations of the workers and not protégés either of the governments or of the bourgeois. Mm. Basically, it's got to come from the workers to have any value. It must be independent. It must have class independence. And we see that today in our efforts to build uh, working class institutions that can build power and spread consciousness independently of um, the Democratic Party or the pre-existing labor bureaucracy. So, part four. Wait, can, I mention, can I mention one thing, Jamie, about part yeah, three? Yeah, yeah. I found interesting. He talks about uh, that, that phrase, the, uh, quote, democratic control of the toiling people. And just for historical context, uh, Marx points out that the majority of, quote, toiling people in Germany at the time were actually uh, peasants. So they were not uh, proletarians. And um, Mm -hmm. also, too, uh, you know, he says that uh, the quote, and particularly in the case of a toiling people, which through these demands that it puts to the state, expresses its full consciousness that it neither rules nor is ripe for ruling. And I mean, you basically just mentioned that, but um, I put something in my notes. Uh, It's like uh, the paraphrase Frederick Douglass, you know, power concedes nothing without demand. And in this case, uh, again, the demand must be expressed through a revolutionary seizure of power. Um, Mm -hmm. The state will not willingly hand over power. You know, we have to Mm -hmm. forcibly take it. So I just think that's a that's important to point out again. Absolutely. I think I got to say I'm more convinced by Marx's view of the state, but I would be because I (laughs) I believe a lot of the shit Marx said, although not everything. I do disagree with him on some stuff and maybe we'll get into that a little bit in the bonus, but, um, shall, shall we go on? So part four, um, the program says the German workers party strives for the quote free state. And Marx is like, what the fuck is that supposed (laughs) to mean? All right. And I quote, the German Workers' Party, at least if it adopts the program, shows that its socialist ideas are not even skin deep. In that, instead of treating existing society, and this holds good for any future one, as the basis of the existing state, or of the future state in the case of future society, it treats the state rather as an independent entity that possesses its own intellectual, ethical, and libertarian bases. Mm. So basically, once again, if you understand the state as a thing with its own independent existence rather than a, as an outgrowth or result of the balance of class forces at play in society, you are woefully, woefully wrong. Yeah. So he goes on to say that the state is, quote unquote, free to do all kinds of shit in Germany and Russia at the moment. And that actually that's bad. He says the bourgeois revolutions have already set the state free in many places around the world. And all that's resulted is a subordination of the state to the class interests of the bourgeoisie. So once again, the state as it currently exists only makes sense as an expression of bourgeois rule. Because that's who rules in capitalist society. The question then arises, says Marx, 
And this is the part that I'm really interested in, as someone who wants to talk about communist future worlds. Quote, what transformation will the state undergo in communist society? In other words, what social functions will remain in existence there that are analogous to present state functions? The question, this question can only be answered scientifically, and one does not get a flea hop nearer to the problem by a thousandfold combination of the word people with the word state. So... Hmm. Basically, um, between, oh, wait, I got confused. Is this still, am I still quoting? Oh yeah. I'm still quoting Marx. <laughs> ha ha. Uh, sh I'm, I'm like, am I paraphrasing this? No, I wouldn't have said it like that. So he continues <laughs> between capitalist and communist society. There lies the period of the revolutionary transformation of the one into the other. Corresponding to this is also a political transition period in which the state can be nothing but the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. Hell yeah. and he puts that in italics to let us know it's important. And then he says, now the program does not deal with this, nor with the future state of communist society. Boo. So if you're anything like me, you're probably on the edge of your seat waiting for Marx to come in and deal with these questions himself. But unfortunately, that's not what you're going to get here because uh, he sticks pretty close to critiquing the text instead. Also, he, um, he doesn't. Uh, I mean, which I, I will talk about later because um, you, you sent me this dropped uh, this amazing article in the discord uh, from Viewpoint Magazine um, by a sod hater um about the term uh, dictatorship of the pro proletariat so uh hopefully we can talk about that in a little bit because marx doesn't even really i mean he kind of has in in this text in his critique of the program he kind of has fleshed out what that actually is right in opposition to uh you know the state being used as a rule of uh, as an instrument of class rule by the bourgeoisie but uh dictatorship of the proletariat is uh, often a contentious term even among marxists so uh yeah. we'll talk about that later yeah. Well, I think the important takeaway about Dick Prol, which is the cool short way that Dick I say Prol, it, Dick Prol. <laughs> is that it's meant to be a temporary emergency measure yes. for the time that it takes us to transition out of capitalism. And then it will no longer be necessary once class society has been abolished. Exactly. It's not meant to be a dictatorship forever. Exactly. Because with the abolition of class society, right, um, then the state, which is the basis of the state, which is, you know, class rule, class distinctions, uh, the state, as Lenin said, will wither away, which eh, historically, you know, eh, you know, but you take what you yeah. get, you know, you have advances and we got to learn from those and then, you know. Yeah, well, I think this is this is one reason why I'm very interested to have on Jasper Burns in our bonus segment, because as you may know, he's a communization guy and the, those folks very much do think that we not only can, but should go straight from capitalism to communism without a phase of state socialism in between. And if you don't know what communization theory is, uh, if you're like me, then uh, yeah, stay tuned for that, uh, for that bonus. Cause, uh, it's like, uh, what if communism, but faster? Yeah, automated communism. <laughs> what if communism, but with fewer steps? What, why don't we just simply do communism? But communism, but an app? <laughs> like there's an app for that, yeah. Oh my god! I never thought I never thought to do that. Uh, yeah, but he he'll definitely tell you. He'll tell all of us in great uh, detail what um, what he thinks of all this stuff. But um, yeah, to be continued. So, what do we got? Marx doesn't write out any receipts for the cook shops of the future. <laughs> if you're expecting him to do that, you're a fool. Yeah. 
Um, unfortunately, I guess he's he left that up to us. <laughs> um, but he says, all right, he keeps going through this dumbass platform, which basically calls for a bunch of bourgeois rights, like universal suffrage, basically democratic political rights. He says that most of these bourgeois rights that the platform calls for have already been realized by various capitalist states, just not the German Empire yet. Yeah. And anyway, he says these rights are only appropriate in a democratic republic, which Germany is not. Therefore, it's foolish to think you could force them on the German state by, quote unquote, legal means. He's basically like, what, what are these even doing in here? Yeah. Um, he also takes aim at the demands for a progressive income tax. Uh, these are all, he says, bourgeois reformist demands that are also supported by plenty of liberals and capitalists, including the Liverpool financial reformers, um, which I don't even need to look them up to know that they suck. <laughs> yeah, they suck. <laughs> so what else do we got? He's, he's got a lot about education, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. The program says, quote, the German Workers' Party demands as the intellectual and ethical basis of the state, one, Universal and equal elementary education by the state. Universal compulsory school attendance, free instruction, end quote. So Marx says uh, this isn't going to be truly equal because the rich and poor under capitalist society are always going to get different educations for their different roles. Um, also, they already have this in countries like Switzerland and the U.S. Mm. So what? Quote, he says, if in some states of the latter countries, talking about the U.S., uh, higher education institutions are also free. That only means, in fact, defraying the cost of education of the upper classes from the general tax receipts. And this is a left critique that I have heard floated of Bernie Sanders' mm. free universal college education plan. Basically, um, you don't change anything else about society, but you put in free college, not even free vocational schools. And guess who's going to benefit from that the most? Um, not the poorest, not the poorest people. And Marx even says, um, he says here right after, they should have at least demanded free technical schools because that would benefit the working class more. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It, I just want to add to like, um, again, yeah, just it's just to make it clear um, that, you know, th this would mean, yeah, sure, you know, free college, but if the working class is footing the bill for higher education for the ruling class through taxation, like, yeah, that's, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily horizon that we want to, we want to achieve, right? You know, like yeah. universal education for sure. But we also have to look at, well, who benefits again in this system, right? The most. Yeah. Yeah. We need to make it so that working class kids are in a position to be going to college. Exactly. Um, like it's not enough just to do the free college, although we should still do the free college, obviously. For sure. I would never stand in the way of people getting free college. Um, where am I? All right. Oh, so he also kind of picks apart the idea of the state educating the people. So I will quote him now. Quote, elementary education by the state is altogether objectionable. Defining by a general law the expenditures on the elementary schools, the qualifications of the teaching staff, the branches of instruction, etc., and, as is done in the United States, supervising the fulfillment of those legal specifications by state inspectors is a very different thing from, from appointing the state as the educator of the people. So basically, it's fine to have public schools and make sure they're good, but don't mistake that for the state educating the people because that's um, that's pretty that's a pretty big, big thing. Yeah. Big statement. Yeah. yeah. Quote, 
government and church should rather be equally excluded from any influence on the school, particularly indeed in the Prusso-German Empire, and one should not take refuge in the rotten subterfuge that one is speaking of a, quote, state of the future. We have seen how matters stand in this respect. The state has need, on the contrary, of a very stern education <laughs> by the people. Hell yeah. I love the way you phrase that, yeah. So once again, he's critical of anything that casts the bourgeois state in any sort of benign light or seeks to give it power over the people. Yeah. And that really, it really reminds me of um, some signs I saw on the way into uh, Zapatista territory when I was in, uh, in Chiapas. Because it was like, you're now entering um, Oventique, which is Zapatista town, where the government, the, the, it was like the people command and the government obeys or something. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty darn cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can, I, can I mention one thing, Jamie, I thought interesting getting to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, when he brings up, like, um, gives, he uses America as an example um, of, uh, of this, uh, I, guess, I guess I'll put it like this, um, specialization of social reproduction you know like just kind of handing over the social and legal responsibility of the uh, of education to the state and like you said i mean it's problematic right because again like we said um what is the function of the state it's an and it's an instrument of a class rule in favor of the bourgeois so you know what what are working class uh children going to learn when they go to school right uh even public school i mean i can tell you you know uh i didn't grow up in the South and go to elementary school in the South, but I can tell you that I've had friends that told me that uh, down here it's taught as the uh, the Civil War is taught as the War of Northern Aggression, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's just one regional example, but you learn all kinds of bullshit, right? Not just because of, uh, you know, the low funding, but you learn all kinds of bullshit in uh, public school because they want to kind of turn you out into little automatons who are going to go to work and follow the rules and, you know, so mm-hmm. need to be wary that's of right. that. That's yeah. right. Yep. Once again, the people need to be in charge. And uh, just having the state teach teach kids bourgeois ideology, that ain't it, chief. That ain't it. (laughs) So there's one more part in this section Mm -hmm. that I thought was amusing. Um, They talk about freedom of conscience. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Basically, he says, quote, everyone should be able to attend his religious as well as his bodily needs without the police sticking their noses in. But the Workers' Party ought, at any rate in this connection, to have expressed its awareness of the fact that bourgeois freedom of conscience is nothing but the toleration of all possible kinds of religious freedom of conscience, and that for its part it endeavors rather to liberate the conscience from the witchery of religion. But one chooses not to transgress the bourgeois level. Mm. So basically... He's saying, he's clarifying, like, when you talk about the liberal right of freedom of conscience, you're talking about freedom of religion. And he's like, yeah, yeah, people should practice whatever religion they want. But, you know, it's the task of the communists to liberate people from the witchery of religion. Because he really sees religion as, I mean, uh, the full quote where he talks about it about how it's the opiate of the masses, the heart of a heartless world, the soul of soulless conditions. He's not saying it's bad necessarily, but he's saying like, 
when we have a more advanced society, people will evolve past the need for religion, which we can debate whether that's true or not. But I think Marx is very clear what he believes. Well, I think like, you know, I mentioned earlier, but, um, you know, if you look at like base and superstructure, the base being the underlying economic order, the mode of production, um, the cultural, religious, um, you know, legal institutions, all of that arises, blossoms out of the base. I mean, you could look at, I don't know, I guess you could look at the base as like the foundation of a house, you know, or a skeleton of a house, right? And all of the things that, uh, that kind of justify it in terms of culture, uh, you know, legality, um, you know, education, all of this, that, uh, yeah, I mean, it would, it would only, it would only mean that, uh, religion, at least as it exists under a capitalist society, is not for any sort of self-fulfillment or liberation or self-realization or any sort of like, you know, fraternity and brotherhood of man. But I mean, it's it's to make sure that, you know, you're you're not out there actually uh, preaching the gospel of the, you know, of uh, of of socialism, of communism. Right. Yep. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. <laughs> exactly. That's all there is to it. So I wanted to spotlight something from the appendix mm. as well. We don't need to do the whole thing. But you found um, some things interesting from there, though, that you want to talk about, yeah. Right? yeah. Like, yeah. So he basically goes through more of the platform's demands in the appendix and points out how they're so vague as to be meaningless mm. or conversely, uh, completely out of place within an illiberal empire like Germany. Uh, but I thought the part about child labor was interesting. Mm. So the program calls to prohibit child labor. And first of all, Marx is like, how do you define a child? Like, you got to put an age in there yeah. or else there's no point to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but also, he kind of defends child labor a little bit. And he does this in Capital, too. So I'm going to quote him. And then you're going to tell me what you think. Mm. All right. So he says, a general prohibition of child labor is incompatible with the existence of large-scale industry and hence an empty, pious wish. Um, I'm not sure about that one, but let's keep going. Mm. Its realization, if it were possible, would be reactionary since, with a strict regulation of the working time according to the different age groups and other safety measures for the protection of children, an early combination of productive labor with education is one of the most potent means for the transformation of present-day society. So he's saying that productive labor, such as working in a factory, should be combined with other kinds of education in order to fully educate the children. Mm. Uh, what do we think about this? I mean, if we're if we're kind of operating off of what he said earlier, that communism will emerge from a capitalist society and therefore will retain some characteristics of the you know previous uh, social order. I mean, I mean, at that hand, I mean, we already have like child labor, still have child labor in today's and present day capitalist society, right? Um, not just, you know, not just throughout the world or other parts of the world, but within the United States. Right. Um, so, I mean, I guess if you're going to have child labor, you might as well like like obviously, you know, you have, um, you know, safety measures, but also, um, you know, it should be tied in with like early education, I guess. But at the same time, I mean, you know, large scale industry and what's capable with technology. I mean, you know, like. The amount, of, the amount of people, the majority of people that work wouldn't really have to work, right? Right? In the society that we even have now. I mean, Marx is talking about this, like, back then in, like, the 1870s. 
But I mean, even now, just not even children, but just people. I mean, like we have machinery that can do the work of like hundreds of people within like an hour. You know, I don't really know if children need to be thrown into work just because, you know, emerging from a capitalist society. Right. We'll have to like kind of retain the vestiges of like, you know, that society. I don't know if that's necessarily true, you know, in 2021, not to say the revolution is going to happen tomorrow, you know, but I, I don't know. It, it, it's also like, man, I like kids, man. Like kids are cool, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like little hands and feet and shit. You know? Well, if you really liked them, you'd put them to work. <laughs> yeah, if you really liked them, you'd put them to work for the future of them, for their future, right? That's what Marx. That's what Marx <laughs> believes. I don't know. I mean, I I go both ways on this. Like, I tend to think that child labor is bad in all forms, mm. but um, and and maybe this is a failure of Marx to see a world beyond the world that he had the world that he existed in but you know under a new mode of production under a new society where everyone does everything Mm. (laughs) basically (laughs) man is a poster in the morning and a farmer in the (laughs) afternoon and then at night he plays video games i could see how getting a mixed education with a bunch of different parts to it could be good for kids you know Mm. like you couldn't get trained for i mean you think about it now think about how education is segmented right the children of the working class go to well actually the children of the working class do get a sort of a well-rounded liberal arts education Mm. in um at the beginning of their lives like they teach you math they teach you how to count Mm. they teach you how to read and write and stuff um not because they think that children matter, not because the state actually cares about the children of the working class, but because the economy demands um, nimble workers. Yeah. The, the capitalist economy of today demands workers with critical thinking skills and the ability to jump from one thing to another. But in terms of college, in terms of secondary school, certainly um, the children of the working class tend to go to vocational school, whereas the children of the really of the upper classes, really the upper middle class and above, um, tend to go to college uh, where they get sort of a well-rounded liberal arts education that doesn't really teach you a trade. It supposedly teaches you how to think. And then if you want to learn a trade, you got to go to grad school. And I know this very well because I went to college. (laughs) Unlike me, yeah. Well, I went to college, but I dropped out. It it still counts. You you experienced college. So, like, I guess on that level, it would be good... If we abolish classes for everyone to get both vocational training and well-rounded arts, literature, history, liberal arts, philosophy, whatever, whatever. Um, And it reminded me of a story I heard about how they would have people in, um, I'm probably fucking this up, but in Cuba, in like post-revolutionary Cuba, they would have people go down and read literature to the workers who were rolling cigars in the factory and i thought that was pretty cool and i think we could probably both come up with some examples of ways that we could combine uh quote-unquote productive labor with more um more shall we say less financially useful forms of education yeah Yeah. which can also just be like like pleasures of the mind you know what i mean like you know, versus like listen to a pot, not that a podcast is an empty pleasure, you know, but instead of like listen to a podcast, you know, while you're working, like you said, I really like that example of people that would come in and read, you know, as workers were rolling cigars, because, you know, that kind of that kind of information is not just 
uh, I don't think it can. I don't think it's only could be utilized like for a job, but I think that in terms of like rounding one out to be a critically thinking person, to be a more fulfilling person, to be a more sensitive or passionate person, even I think that's important. Right? I wish I had someone to read me a, you know, Ernest Hemingway when I was like fucking washing dishes, you know, at a diner. You know what I mean? I know, right? And nice. you know, I think by combining these things maybe we can move towards a world where the distinction between work and leisure time collapses to some degree, like Marx talks about in that famous passage mm-hmm. when labor becomes life's prime want. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's all just stuff you do in the yeah. course of existing as a human. Like, what are we doing right now? Yeah. I guess we're doing work, technically. We're not getting paid very much for it, but we're also enjoying it and we're getting something out of it. Exactly. So like it's a mixture. Dialectics, you know, it's dialectics and kind of the, the how can I say, I guess the, the negation of the alienation or the independence or the separateness, the distinction of all facets of all facets of our life. Right. Like, I think that's one thing that, um, you know, Marx really tries to get at is that it's all not just nature and human development, but really it is all kind of intertwined. Right. And it's all necessary for a fulfilling human life. So, uh, you know, like if you want to, I don't know, like learn how to, you know, write a, I don't know, an iambic pentameter or, you know, you want to work in the mess hall, the communal mess hall. Those both things, both of those things are uh, incredibly important, I think, Mm -hmm. to being a person, you know. And they are going to be equally available to everybody. Indeed. Indeed. We're not just going to have one class that does one and one class that does another. Indeed. But still, I feel like maybe little kids should not be working. Yeah, I, I don't want to see that's those. That's my hot take. Yeah, I don't want to see those little heads, like, you know, like like working gears or anything fucked up like that, man. Let, like, yeah. let kids be kids. We have the technology where, uh, you know, children do not have to work. You know, yeah, no, maybe <laughs> teens though. Yeah, yeah, I, I you know, like yeah, I'm more keep them busy. I'm more preferential to, I'm more partial to children than teens. Like teens fucking suck, so maybe they should work. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> it keeps them from getting into trouble. <laughs> exactly, I think. exactly. So, okay, I have some discussion questions here. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to move into our final portion, indeed. So. All right. I wrote some down. You probably got some to trade off. See how it goes. All right. So I have a question for you Mm. here in parts of this. I guess it's an essay. I don't know. It's a critique. Mm. Uh, Marx says that socialism and communism must arise out of capitalism um, and, you know, have some of its characteristics as one transitions into the other. Mm. But in other parts, he kind of dismisses the demands for bourgeois rights, rights commonly associated with capitalist democracy and its associated philosophy of liberalism. Uh, He says these demands are pointless in the context of the illiberal German empire. Is this a contradiction? Question mark. Um, Well, I, if I want to answer this, I kind of want to turn to, uh, and maybe you should include it in the show notes, um, the, this article that you dropped in the Discord by Assad Hader from Viewpoint Mag, uh, titled Dictatorship Dies in Darkness, where he kind of tackles the phrase uh, dictatorship of the proletariat. And I guess the reason why I want to bring that up is because um, the, the dictatorship of the proletariat and um, even this idea of democracy, um, I'm actually just going to quote uh, Assad uh, from here. Um, but he says, he says that um, it's a question of whether 
quote, it is possible to exit the bourgeois concept conception of politics in which democracy is equated with the framework of rights and the parliament parliamentary apparatus. And so the dictatorship of the pro proletariat is this kind of intermediate, like transitory phase. Um, and I think that, you know, with the with the dialectical kind of kind of combination of of, yeah, sure, I guess, like, you know, these rights and some sort of parliamentary proceduralism, I guess, coming out of um, bourgeois liberalism, but also to making sure that that's not the communist horizon, if that makes sense. Right. I think this is similar to what we were talking about earlier, where redistribution, we see this with left liberals again and democratic socialists, where redistribution is their horizon. Um, I think it's kind of important to realize that, um, no, that is that is not the case. But also, too, you know, through parliamentarianism, through coalition building um, that I mean, I guess I guess the goal is that socialism and communism wants to fulfill the promise of liberalism. Right. These are uh, guarantee guarantees, well, but actually fulfill some it. people some think people, it does. Some people say that it does. Not all. Some people say other people have issues with the very concept of rights in the first place. Yeah. But like, yeah. what's I going to say about this? Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me if he's saying that you got to go step by step, it seems like you need a phase of liberal democracy before you could get to socialism or communism. Exactly. But um, but then he's saying maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like this has been used to justify or or make sense of the fact that various actually existing socialist states like uh, China mm -hmm. or the USSR have had to develop uh, capitalism mm -hmm. in certain ways um, before they could even attempt to get to socialism. Or at least that's what a lot of people said about mm -hmm. what went on there and i think to a large degree is true um but yeah i feel like once again we can get uh we can get some interesting takes from jasper on this because he has some definite thoughts yeah. on the stagist conception of history and specifically how we get to communism yeah yeah i got another one here are you you got something? Yeah, and I, I got something. Well, I well you can if you want to ask yours, and then I got something too. Uh, a couple of things I want to mention, but yeah, let's go back yeah, and let's forth. Go back forth. All right. Um, I guess this is more kind of a. I mean, it's kind of coupled with modern day relevance, which I mean, I don't know if that'll be the last last part, but it also was kind of a, a. I don't know if it's a point of question, but just I guess something to talk about. Um, like right in the beginning. Um. And, you know, I forget about this all the time, right? Um, the role of nature, the integral role of nature um, to human development, political economy. But right in the beginning, Marx recenters nature um, as important. And I think that was I think that's a very important point. And um, especially given that, like I mentioned earlier, like we're going through a mass extinction event. I mean, you know, last summer what we had wildfires, you know, I mean, this summer, I think, again, we're having wildfires and heat and um, heat waves. So what do, what do you think about that, Jamie, and how important that is that Marx right off the bat addresses nature um, and really essentially historical materialism kind of, you know, yeah. he's bringing it back yeah. to the basics right in the beginning. I think it's very important. Um, it seems like, I mean, obviously he's doing two things there. He's attacking LaSalle and his coziness with the landowners and the aristocrats. Mm. And, you know, 
knowingly or not, he's laying the groundwork for eco-socialism because nature provides the basis of every mode of production yeah. and you really can't separate out um, humans from nature. Mm. So um, I think he did, he predicted in a lot of ways um, the growing importance of nature to any socialist movement that's worth anything oh, yeah. and especially now as climate change is uh rearing its ugly head we oh, really yeah. can't afford to ignore it oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. um what else let's see um so i also liked that he distinguishes between lower and higher stage communism mm. in this um he places this labor voucher system in really its proper place as this necessary evil or as a temporary transitional measure, mm. because, you know, he says from each according to his abilities to each according to his contribution is not an ideal scenario. And in fact, not equal. We really need to get to from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. And it's incredibly important to keep our eyes on the prize, the prize being communism. Mm. Right. And socialism really only makes sense as a transition to communism and that really spoke to me as someone who's dealt with a lot of people who call themselves socialists you could be a little bit gaslighty (laughs) a little bit gaslighty about how like yeah we just need to get to socialism and that's fine that's the horizon when in fact um socialism is really just a crappier version of communism that we're supposed to use as a stepping stone yeah the the lower phase of communism against socialism is uh, i think mark says that it's still stigmatized by uh, bourgeois limitations and you know like i i mean even now right when i go out and talk to people you know i'm out at a bar or something or i'm hanging out with people that uh you know don't don't really know me or my politics and uh if i'm gonna troll people you know i'll be like uh or not troll but shock them i guess and be like yeah i'm a communist you know um to be an asshole but i think that like when we talk like among the left and people say that uh you know i've heard people say that uh every communist is a socialist but not every socialist is a communist And that's never now, like, you know, years later, it doesn't make sense to me because, you know, it is like a trend. It's a transition, right? Like we can't immediately go from any way. We can't go from capitalism to communism anyway. We talked about it for the past, like, you know, hour or so. But also, too, I mean, social well, the communization people think you they, can, exactly, which we'll, which we'll talk about. That's a Jasper. topic for Jasper. <laughs> for Jasper. I'm, I'm really curious to hear what he has to say about that. But in my view, at least, um, yeah, man, like it's it's important to differentiate between these distinctions, because like you said, Jamie, um, socialism is still uh, taint or stained. Right. Um, by, uh, you know, previous inequalities from the from the previous existing order. Um, and it's important to to not pigeonhole ourselves and to not limit our horizon, but to like, you know, see what, you know, humanity could actually become, what reality could actually look like. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't see why you would want to get the socialism. And then say, uh, you know, well, yeah, some people get, you know, get more than others because they can work a little longer. But at the end of the day, like, I don't know why that would be your, you know, that would be what you would want to end at. Right. Instead of the abolition of class distinctions, the abolition of private property, no money, all of no state. You know, I don't see why you wouldn't want to get to that end goal, uh, even if it's. even if it's just, uh, I don't want to use the word idealistic, even though it's something uh, something to reach for, you know, even if we won't see it on our lifetimes, I think that should, yeah. the goal should be kept in mind, you know. Of course, of course it should. I mean, whether or not it's possible, 
we got to try just in case yeah. it is. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's, uh, it's up to us to decide whether or not, uh, it will be possible, you know? So how cool, how cool would that be? That'd be tight as fuck. That'd be tight as fuck, man. I'll be, uh, be like 90 years old, probably in Guantanamo Bay, like languishing. And then, you know, I'll see the revolution <laughs> popping off. You know what I mean? Like on the CCTVs and shit. That'd be tight. That's why we have to take care of ourselves. Indeed. Indeed. So what is the modern day relevance to this? I feel like we've covered it to a large degree because these things just really, really popped out at us. Yeah. Um, but I do think it sheds light on how we should approach coalition work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a general idea floating around that coalitions are inherently good. And anyone who tries to critique or question in any way a certain coalition is just a wrecker but it is possible to lose more than you gain from a coalition um and you know marx turned out to be right when the social democratic party killed rosa cannot say that enough times they killed rosa shot her in the back of the head and threw in a fucking river man threw her in the fucking (laughs) river fucking river dude monsters so yeah the challenge really is to form coalitions without sacrificing any of your principles or your platform. And if you can't do that, sometimes you need to walk away. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, that's right. And uh, I, I had two points for modern day relevance. I mean, uh, you know, going off of what you said, this is uh, very closely related. Uh, you know, yeah, again, left liberals, uh, we talked about this again extensively, left liberals and self-described, so, self-described socialist, which, you know, this is, you could basically collectively call it the progressive wing, quote, progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Which, you know, uh, will, yeah, sure, include people like Bernie and AOC and, you know, even Warren. I mean, even Joe Biden, you know, the most progressive president, uh, um, you know, uh, since, I guess, the Great Depression, right, or so on. Um, But, I mean, these these folks are more preoccupied, again, with redistribution rather than uh, working class seizure of the means of production. Uh, Even some Republicans uh, in the wake of COVID, um, are uh have you know have preached uh, redistribution uh in terms of covid relief not many of them but even this neo-fascist party right um has acknowledged that redistribution so that you know that people are not dragged out of their homes at 3 a.m screaming by their hair you know what i mean so people aren't met with pitchforks and torches you know they're like all right we got to give them something right so i think again the limiting of that horizon is something we got to be key about but also too and we didn't talk about it too much and i hope we get into it with other texts Um, Because this is something that, I mean, obviously in the wake of, um, I mean, which is still ongoing in Palestine, um, you know, just the way that the the American left, the working class uh, responds to uh, internationalism. Right. Uh, Unfortunately, we are nowhere near organized enough right now to lend any material support. Right. To uh, to proletarians across the world. But instead, we fall back on these like Lasallian like. empty phrases and gestures and as you mentioned jamie when you covered it um we need to actually fucking do something uh you know don't ask me exactly what we should do um i'm not exactly sure but i do think one thing is that um to just build um just build the ranks and the resources to be able to actually effectively communicate right um with workers across the world right um i think also to even just look at what workers across the world are doing i mean Within the imperial core, we may not see any socialism, um, definitely not, you know, uh, won't, communism won't arise from here. But, I mean, look at Latin America, you know, look at parts in Asia and Africa, 
I mean, look at the movements across the world and you can see that, uh, yeah, people are actually getting shit done, you know? So I think that's the modern day relevance in terms of, uh, again, left liberals and, you know, social Democrats and even self-described socialists sort of falling back on these platitudes, I think is something that, I mean, we still have to deal with, right? So, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're at a good time. I think we're at a good time. What do you I think, think? I think we're at a good time. And I think, uh, you know, I don't think we uh, bungled through it. I think we were able to help people. And I mean, hopefully, if you listen to this and I mean, I don't know why you would do this. I wouldn't. But you can listen to it and read along, um, you know, while you do, because we tried to kind of cover everything um, in kind of a linear way. But uh, yeah, I think I think we're good. I think that was great, and I think we should both be very proud of ourselves. I think we should. Yo. I'm going to give myself a, a, a hand clap. That's right. Give yourself a pat on the back. Yeah. I'm going to help myself to one, too. Hell yeah. Because this is really a new thing for us, and yeah. I'm very excited about it. Yes. Um, I should tease that we will be having, um, I guess by the time this comes out, we will have already recorded it. Um, we are going to be doing a deeper discussion of this for a bonus with our guest, Jasper Burns. Um, he is a controversial figure on the communist <laughs> left. His association with endnotes and um, communization theory uh, could be a bit divisive. But I'm very interested to see what he has to say. And in fact, I was talking to another potential guest trying to figure out which which text he was going to do and when i told him he was like well i would like to do maybe critique of the gotha program and i told him that i was thinking of having jasper on he was like oh you should definitely do that i am very curious <laughs> to hear what he's going to say <laughs> so stay tuned for part two wherein we continue our exploration of critique of the gotha program with the great controversial jasper burns oh, yeah. I, again i'm excited for that because uh you know, I, you've, I've listened to the uh, Antifada episodes, at least two of them you've recorded on communization theory. I've heard you talk about it. You've talked with me about it. And I'm still like, what the fuck does this mean? So I'm very excited to get uh, to uh, talk to him and uh, kind of get some uh, explainers out. And maybe, I mean, I'm a dumbass, but I'm going to try to challenge him because uh, I don't know. I'm, I think I might have some qualms with the communization theory, too. So uh, that maybe as too high. Yeah. So uh, I like it a lot yeah. but there's also i have questions yeah. so yeah. i think we both do yeah. but yeah stay tuned for that uh we're both very excited and until next time do the reading do the reading do the reading it's only 20 pages do it <laughs> <laughs>